Hello, folks, and welcome to episode 16 of the End of Sport podcast. In today's episode, we sit down with USA Today's For the Win editor and columnist Hamel Javeri to discuss the ongoing inspiring resistance against police violence and white supremacy, the myriad public statements made by athletes and organizations, and the media industry's role in tackling systemic racism and misogyny. This episode was recorded on June 4th, so it was right before Roger Goodell's public pandering and non-apology to Colin Kaepernick. So we'll have to have Hemel back on the show to talk about that. As always, if you're liking the show, please share it on your networks and tag us at End of Sport Pod on either Twitter or Instagram. Or if you have any questions, please feel free to send us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Javeri is an editor and columnist at USA Today's For the Win. Emil, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you guys so much for having me. It is a pleasure. Now, um, the question that we are asking everyone, but now it seems like I, I don't even know what to ask <laughs> anyone anymore, uh, has been, you know, how is the pandemic treating you um, outside Washington, D.C., where you are? But I mean, really, the question is not just how the pandemic is treating you. It's also how are the uprisings treating you? How is life treating you in general? Yeah, it has been, it's just been an exhausting couple of weeks, but all things considered, I'm incredibly privileged and I'm incredibly lucky. I, we've managed to survive the pandemic relatively at ease. You know, I'm super lucky. We get to work from home. A lot of our job can be done over the internet. Um, so aside from a little bit of cabin fever, you know, I'm, I'm doing really well. Great. That's wonderful to hear. Um, <laughs> Okay, well then let's let's dig into the issue that is you know on all of our minds right now, or certainly should be. Um, so you know it's it's a little bit difficult because there's always a lag in terms of when we release our recordings versus when we make them, and, and these days the news changes every hour. Like it's really impo- feels impossible to keep up with what's going on. Um, but I mean, in general, certainly what's taking place right now, and I'm I, I suspect will be taking place whenever we release a show. Um, is that we're in the middle of a period of inspiring resistance against police violence and white supremacy, um, and yet at the same time, a moment that is equally horrifying in the repressive fascist state violence that has been unleashed in response. Um, Violence that frankly indicates the determination of the state and its police not to legitimize themselves as moral actors, but rather to simply impose their raw power and authority regardless of justice or even any kind of simulacrum of justice. Um, during a pandemic, I might add. Uh, so basically, I- I'd just love to start by getting your thoughts on what you are seeing unfold in front of us, and then perhaps, you know, how we fit sport into all of this. Yeah, I, I have struggled with how to verbalize what is happening, because like you said, things are changing so quickly that part of me feels like I'm, I'm missing a large chunk of, of what is happening. Um, and part of me is also unable to process everything that's happening so quickly because it is inspiring in a sense, but there is also this kind of shared collective trauma that we're all going through right now so that we're not going to be able to process this for like years, right? right? Right now, I feel like everyone is just trying to get through things. Um, I am like everybody. I'm equal parts kind of inspired by what I see happening in the streets, uh, what I see with people 
rising up, they, you know, speaking out when I never thought they would speak out before. And the other part of it is uh, a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety about what happens next. How do we keep sustaining this? Is, is this something that's going to, to lead to lasting change? Um, and one of the things is that, you know, I think we're so used to like looking at everything as binaries in our culture that it's hard for us to uh, hold both of these emotions at the same time. Um, so it, it's really confusing. And I go to bed sometimes like really enthused and excited about what we might see in the future. And then other times, you know, you just are, are looking outside your window and thinking about stuff that's happening 10 miles away. And it, it leaves me just like, riddled with fear about where we might be as a society yeah yeah, yeah. That's, that's really exactly how to put it uh, I, i'm wrestling with all those same feelings no no question about it yeah um, and, and i'm sorry of, that was a long-winded yeah. answer no no i trust me we we, we encourage long-winded answers right here <laughs> absolutely <laughs> if you ever listen to me talk you know that i could possibly uh expect anything else for others um no, but you know, one of the things you were saying was this kind of these con these contradictory feelings, and even you know, that's if we if we turn it to sport, as you were sort yeah. of saying, there's weird contradictions in what we're hearing from sports figures and athletes. Um, and you write a lot about the NHL, which is a great site to talk about mm -hmm. when we're we're trying to get into these kind of issues, um, because and you wrote this past week about how white NHL players have finally started to speak about race in this wake of rebellions triggered, triggered, excuse me, by the police murder of George Floyd and others. Yet, we also know that hockey culture is completely notorious for its racism and lack of solidarity towards the treatment of non-white players. I mean, like as bad as it gets, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. I, yeah. If I have to name a single sport I'm least comfortable with in terms of its culture around race, uh, it is hockey, you know, and I would have said that maybe for, about baseball for a while, but no, it's not baseball. It's actually mm -hmm. hockey. Mm -hmm. I agree um, with you. Okay, so yeah, uh, given that, um, and given kind of what we're starting to hear, what responsibility do you think white NHLers have in this moment, ethically speaking? And then, kind of to complicate that further, how should we read their words? in the context of all that we, we've just mentioned, like what has preceded this week, right? The, the yeah. deafening silence that has preceded this week. Is there yeah. any more weight to the words of a white hockey player today than a corporation like Nike trying to score points, PR points, by reading the mood of the market? Yeah. So let me, let me start with that first part of that question first, because I, I think that white NHL players have absolutely skirted their responsibility up until about three days ago. And mm -hmm. just to bring more context to this, if you're not familiar with the ecosystem of the NHL, it is very homogenous. Their culture is extremely restrictive to the point where if you are a Black player, if you are an Asian player, they basically expect you to discard that racial identity at the door because it does not fit into their ethos. And it isn't something as altruistic as uh, we don't see race in our locker room. It very much is our culture, which is the white culture, is the dominant culture, and that is what you will abide by. So that's just implicit when you go into NHL locker rooms. Um, and, you know, that, that question that you asked, which is like, what are we seeing from white NHL players right now? It's something that I have written about like a week before the George Floyd murder and before they started making statements. And it was related to racism in the NHL when Akeem Alou, 
who is a former NHL player, had been really outspoken about the racial, racial abuse that he suffered while he was in the league. And no one in the league said anything. No white player, uh, except for, I think, uh, one or two players uh, two days after he came out with his Players' Tribune essay, you know, said like, hey guys, we need to step up to make a change. There was deafening silence. Um, that culture is so restrictive that they're unable to even admit out loud for fear of blowback that racism is a thing. And, and I mean, I just cannot imagine like what it has to be like to be a black player in that kind of a locker room. Um, so to that extent, what we're seeing now with NHL players coming forward and making these statements and saying, okay, I think, you know, just like real basic, basic stuff. Like, yes, racism exists. Yes, we have problems in our locker room. I, you never, you wouldn't have, you didn't see that 10 days ago, 10 days ago, they had an opportunity to do it and they didn't do it. So to that degree, or, or is this a huge change? Yeah, it's like a massive sea change. And the second part of your question was, what does, do these statements mean anything? And that is going to be a lot more difficult to parse because that really depends on what happens next. I think there are some NHL players, especially the ones who came out kind of within a day or two of George Floyd and within Evander Kane, who, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he had this like great interview where he really pushed white players to, to come forward. So there was Connor Carrick. Blake Wheeler was one of the first guys. He plays for the Win Winnipeg Jets. Uh, um, those guys really went out on a limb because they, they didn't have the, the buffer that players who are making statements right now had. They're the ones whose statements I thought were really genuine. Those are the guys who are really like, I need to take a hard look at myself. I need to think about the things that I have done wrong. And those st statements to me hold a lot of weight because they didn't have the safety net. Um, a lot of the things that I see right now with players who are kind of coming in four to five days after everybody else has done it, like, you're going to have to work a lot harder, buddy. Like to me, that's the same as like a brand statement. Um, but some players, you can tell, honestly, like if you are looking at these statements, you can tell who has taken the time to really do some soul searching and really say, okay, I've thought about this and I, I need to up my game a little bit and who like, and I'm just, you know, Sidney Crosby, I've been really critical of him. Like Sidney Crosby's statement, that's trash. Just don't say anything. It's just this weak hodgepodge of buzzwords that like promote unity without really calling out any kind of, you know, systemic racism. Like just, just be quiet, Sid. Like nobody needs that. Um, so it's, it's not a flat answer in terms of like, do these statements mean anything from some players? Yeah. I think some players actually get it and are going to step up and lead. And a lot of other players are just kind of doing what their PR agents tell them to do. You you mentioned like the the PR angle and like I I want I agree completely with your assessment of like individual responses, but I I kind of want to just move a little bit to like organizational responses because yeah. we're seeing like not only NHL teams and franchises, but we're also like seeing big corporations coming out with a variety of different messages. Mm -hmm. Um, like we're seeing teams across sports sort of release these statements about their position on the murder of George Floyd and, and others. And you recently addressed a statement by the New York Islanders that you indicted as like particularly problematic. And I, I want to quote that for our listeners. And the, the New York Islanders came out and said, 
quote, we condemn racism and injustice and stand with all affected by senseless violence. We must come together, treating each other with empathy, dignity, and respect. The New York Islanders endorse the NHL statement, which includes, and they're quoting the NHL statement, in our, in, in our own sport, we will continue to do better and work diligently towards culture change throughout hockey and endeavor to be mindful of our own shortcomings in this process. To the brave officers who go to work every day, seeing the human being as not the color of one's skin, we thank you for protecting us. Can you break this statement down and, and why it sort of fails and what you would look for in sort of an effective statement? Um, and this is, um, for us, really the, the crux of the issue. Can you speak to the efficacy of such statements more generally? Do they have value beyond virtue signaling? Yeah, so let's break down the Islander statement a little bit, and then we'll talk about those statements overall. Um, the Islanders, every single part of the statement is wrong, right? Like the beginning <laughs> yeah. is a, a vague uh, condemnation of things that are happening, doesn't mention George Floyd, you know, does not mention violence against black people. There's like, we value empathy, we value dignity and respect. Like that doesn't mean anything. Um, and then the second part is that they quote, it's one meaningless statement, like quoting another meaningless statement. It's like a Russian nesting dolls of meaningless <laughs> corporate statements. Like it doesn't, there's so much double speak happening here that that middle paragraph might as well just be, um, it, it's kind of like when you cut and paste a document into another document and you can't tell where the origin is from, right? Of course, the, the worst part of that statement is that last bit, right? Mm -hmm. Where they have to like show respect to the brave officers who go to work every day seeing you know the human beings and not the color of their skins like i i just that's garbage that is utter utter garbage and it shows that the islanders either are willfully ignorant of what is happening or just don't care right like they under i would hope that they would understand what these protests are about and either they're choosing not to or they're choosing to misconstrue it um and to me, the Islanders are on this like roll left side or right side. I don't know which way you want to put it, but they're on one side of how not to do these statements. Um, and I'm not going to say that I, it's not like any NHL team has had a perfect statement. But to me, some of the key words that you need to be using are you need to mention George Floyd by name. You need to mention police brutality. You need to mention systemic racism. You need to talk about... Uh, you know, racial bias, race, racial prejudice. Uh, and there's no NHL team that has come out and kind of, in my opinion, gotten it right or, and been able to say, we have a lot of work to do. Here's how we're going to do it. Systemic racism is a problem. It's a problem in our team. It's a problem in our organization. None of that has happened. Um, I'm also, oh, so, so sorry. No, no, no go ahead. I'm, 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 yeah, I'm done. I'm also like, uh, like personally, I'm seeing all these like universities and basically every organization that we can think of coming out with these same statements. And when they don't mention black lives matter, like that to me seems like you've missed the mark completely. Totally, totally. And they use the hashtag united as one. What does that mean? It doesn't mean uh, anything. 
Um, sorry, you guys. There's a thunderstorm happening outside my window. <laughs> you can hear it. It sounds like fireworks. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Hold on one second. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, I tried to move away. Are you are you safe and okay? Like, is everything good? <laughs> no, no, no. Everything's totally fine. It's just okay. that it's I'm next to a window, so you can you might be able to hear it a little bit more. <laughs> you can hear you can hear the the rain hitting the window. I think that's what it is. That's what it is. There's a little bit of uh, extra drama. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Like, listen, this is a high stakes conversation, uh, and so it's only appropriate. You know what it reminds? I want to say what, what you were just saying reminds me of those when the NFL protests post Kaepernick, or you know, like when Ka- the Kaepernick situation seemed to be escalating in that mm-hmm. we were getting more and more protest actions. But then, like, seemingly the apotheosis of it was ultimately the owners linking arms with the yes. players on the field. Yeah. Like, oh, we're all part of, like, what are you talking about? This is, yeah. a, this is a critique of racial capitalism. Like, there's, there's <laughs> no, we're all in this together. Like, you no. are the problem. You so- have to change. Yeah, so so you guys talked about the the efficacy of these of these corporate statements, and uh, it very specific to the NHL. Like I said a week ago, two weeks ago, you would not have gotten even a statement acknowledging that racism exists. So to that degree, the fact that some teams are are willing to use the Black Lives Matter hashtag, and that some teams have said, you know, we think systemic racism is a problem. That to me is a step forward. But in general, this is really about what they're going to be doing afterward. Um, and I don't mean to derail this conversation, but I actually have a question I've been meaning to ask people. And I, and I kind of want to run it by you in terms of hey, people do it. co-opting movements, which is that we've seen Black Lives Matter now being used by everyone. Do you think it's starting to lose like some of what it actually means because it's starting to get co-opted? Well, uh, I'll start, Derek, and then just jump in with whatever you got. But um, yeah. yeah, I think that this like this kind of corporate appropriation is an example of that. Um, yeah. Because like, and uh, frankly, I don't feel like this is just beginning right now. To me, the Nikeification of Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter was mm-hmm. w- because you know I teach on sports, and so I want to mm-hmm. use um, you know po- popular culture artifacts in the world of sport to teach with my students. And so commercials can be really helpful, right? I might be teaching a close reading exercise or something and like a, a 30 or seconds advertisement. Yeah. It's useful, right? Yeah. And there was actually a really powerful ad. I think it was in February, 2017 around the all-star game at that point um, that they released that had LeBron in and had a ton of their main uh, athletes that, you know, that they, they, they sponsored. Um, and it, it culminates with um, this whole community in Cleveland kind of, rushing around a basketball court with LeBron James in the center as if they're all mm-hmm. coming together, right? And there's mm-hmm. a young black child with her fist raised at the end. And then mm-hmm. the Nike logo kind of comes over top of that fist. Uh, and I love to use that ad in part because it seems really powerful. Like it's actually, re- I, I've watched it a million times <laughs> because I watch it. We watch it three times every class I show it and I have multiple sections of the course. But I'm telling you, it's still has an affective reaction from like I still get an affective reaction from it. I move when I watch it because it's a brilliantly produced ad mm-hmm. and the music mm-hmm. and everything, like the emotional crescendo, I feel it. And like, but like the insidious genius of that ad <laughs> is that like Nike becomes black power yeah. in that moment. They are inextricably linked in your yes. mind and in your emotions. And that's yeah. bullshit. Yeah. 
It is, um, it's, uh, what is it? Uh, I'm going to have to Google it, but it's what Mark said in terms of commodity fetishization, right? If, if I'm using it right, right? Exactly. In terms of like, you're just imbuing ideology on this product that like should not have it. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly yeah. right. And, and so, you know, we've been building to this moment <laughs> in a certain yeah. sense. And that's why, you know, like, so first Nike came, Nike did, they came out with an ad, like, no surprise, right? It wasn't like Nike was the New York Islanders or Major League Baseball jumping in nine days after or whatever with their statement. Nike was number one kind of thing, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. That's their brand already. Um, but of course, they'll still, they'll still make those Betsy Ross sneakers on the other side, right? Because like secretly, <laughs> we're going to tap into that white supremacist market on the side. Um, right. But I mean, but after Nike, like every other corporation, you know, I saw someone on Twitter uh, they tweeted about um, Logitech. The company Logitech had a statement like, what the fuck do they have to do with yeah. anything around this, right? But it's easy because it's what, exactly what you said. PR consultants are like, this will be good. This is, there's a market here, right? Like, that's what they see. They see a market. The companies, they see a market, which is like people in the streets. That's what that earlier Nike ad was about. They saw people, they saw the women's march. They saw people in the streets protesting Trump. And they were like, they just like, their, their eyes opened wide, right? Like they were ready mm -hmm. to feast on people's emotions. And, and like when people were burning, when, when white supremacists are burning Nike shoes in the street, that's great for their brand too. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, great. Because the market they're really concerned about, they're gonna, that's just going to make them feel even more powerfully connected to Nike. Um, yeah. So all this is to say, yeah, I, I mean, the, 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 and frankly, like the, our, the, the Tuesday blackout thing was a great example of this, right? Well, I forgot, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I, like I forgot what the hashtag was called. But like, uh, Blackout Tuesday. Blackout Tuesday, thank you. It was really hard to remember. Um, <laughs> uh, so, but like essentially what we're talking about there and what, what ended up happening, right, was that like white people, liberal white people posted these images that blocked out the Black Lives Matter feed, right? Yeah. So like nothing useful could happen because it's really easy to post a black square online. We don't have to say anything about that at all. And now suddenly we are Black Lives Matter. So to me, this is exactly what you're talking about, right? Like it yeah. becomes completely debased of meaning at that point. Um, but yeah. let me just give you the one last thing, because here you, you said that you were going on long, and now you can see why I, I can't possibly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, at the same time, we are seeing young people coming out night after night and being viciously abused by police mm -hmm. officers, and like they just seem to be more eager to get back on the street. And that I mean, I'm, I, I'm cynical all the time, whatever. Not right now. I mean, like, I'm dead serious when I say in the same way that I felt inspired by people in terms of the Bernie campaign, like the, the kids, like, really, really working to change their future. <laughs> um, I mean, I, we see that here now. And uh, that is not any kind of bullshit, corporate commodification, whatever else. It's like raw politics, people really fighting for the lives they deserve. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that, that's also Black Lives Matter. And Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter deserves all the credit for kind of inspiring a movement that can culminate in this point, or I mean, this may not be the culmination, but it's certainly a critical step along the way. And so, you know, that's powerful. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and Derek, I don't want to cut you off um, if, if you had some thoughts uh, as well, but... Go, please go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I think that you made a great distinction between the corporate use of the hashtag and the intention that's playing out in real life. So when NHL teams use that hashtag, I, I think that it's great. I think that it's a huge step forward. It's better than not using it at, at all, but it doesn't come close to the kind of real action 
that we're seeing people demonstrate in the streets. You know, there's one NHL player actually today who marched a white player, Tyler Sagan. He plays for the Dallas mm-hmm. Stars. And again, if you had told me 10 days ago that this would happen, I would never have believed that you'd see a white NHL player in a Black Lives Matter protest. And I'm like you, I'm deeply cynical. And I kind of, it's not that I, I want to think the worst of people, but it's that we've all been burned so badly in the past. Um, and when I see something like that, you know, I do feel a little bit of hope that like, okay, if we can just get a couple of people to open their eyes and take real leadership roles, then we're going to start to see real change, right? Because then that change is going to be sustainable. Um, so it, it doesn't mean anything to me, really, if a, if a team comes out with a great statement. Um, it, it means a lot to me when a team comes out with a bad statement, because then you can see why it's so terrible. But it means the most to me when you're, you're going to start to see like two weeks from now, if people are actually going to be committing resources to affect change. Like, like you said, Nathan, there are these people who are out there and they're putting their bodies on the line night after night. And you're right. That's the real Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the teams are going to have to do a lot of work to to convince us that they're actually committed to it. And a lot of players are going to have to do the work as well. Like we're really highlighting to me when I see these statements to see like how devoid they are of any meaningful action. Like we're really highlighting this. Okay. So they're, they're coming out They're They're, they're, um, releasing these statements, however long they are. And I have yet to see like a, a, a strong push to have any action included in the statement. Mm-hmm. So it all seems to be appeasing something, whether mm-hmm. or not that's PR. I, I, the, the cynic in me and the, like the anti-capitalist in me is, is like, these are all just PR statements that are completely devoid of any action. Not only is no action ever mentioned, like here are like, are, we have phased approaches to getting out of the the pandemic, but we can't have a phased approach to talking to actually like dealing in action mm-hmm. in these things in the future. But also, we are seeing like the minor references to allegiances that these companies and these institutions are pledging their allegiance to for for no better um, way of framing that like we see in the new york islanders the last couple sentences they're basically pledging their allegiance to a police state that is reifying producing reproducing racialized violence and white supremacy and that is like the the crux of the issue with many of these statements like the fact that you come out and you say okay like we're we're focused on diversity we're interested in treating everyone equal blah 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 means almost nothing the moment you say but we also respect the police yep who are out there working hard for us and protecting us and all this crap um and and like when i see these statements i immediately um like question them like first off because there's no action and second off like the new york islanders like basically you're completely ruining your statement and any whatever your statement means by then reifying the same system and reproducing that same system that has been centuries of uh, white supremacy systemic racism that you you want there like you want there so i'm 
I don't really have a question here other than the rambling about like the the complete hypocrisy that I see in all of these statements. So maybe I'll just open up and say like, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I actually do have a question. I'm going to jump in with a question that builds on what exactly what you said. Okay? <laughs> Thank you. I couldn't, I couldn't think of, I couldn't like frame it in a way. Well, well, yeah. Um, ask your question. And, but then I do have a point to make after that. Okay. Well, my, my question is because the NBA today announced mm-hmm. they're starting back up. So that's now people know mm-hmm. when we recorded this, um, the NBA announced that they started back up and Part of their statement, by the way, right? The NBA is the quote unquote gold standard when it comes right. to how they're handling this. Um, okay, or uh, maybe not the pandemic. That's a separate issue. I'm talking more about like statements in this category. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. The end of what they said today, they said, we also recognize that as we prepare to resume play, our society is reeling from recent tragedies of racial violence and injustice. And we will continue to work closely with our teams and players to use our collective resources and influence to address these issues in very real and concrete ways, end quote. Okay, so the question then is, how exactly could or would the NBA address, quote, racial violence, not racist violence, by the way, which I think we always need to acknowledge, in, quote, very real and concrete ways. Like, they're a basketball association. They're making a big claim here. They're making the kind of claim we might be hoping for, but they're certainly not concretizing their very real claim. Yeah, I I mean, the NBA to me has earned some goodwill because they have at least allowed their players to be really vocal, right? And and not so much they've allowed their players, but they have certainly had no choice but to support their players, right? Like their big talent gets in front of issues and demands that the league stand behind them. Like they have a lot of leverage and in terms of real and concrete ways, I would say that the one real concrete thing that not just the NHL, but the NBA can also do is stop doing law enforcement appreciation nights. Uh, once yeah. we start getting you know fans back into the arena, once games start being played, I'm telling you the first time a law appreciation night comes on a team schedule, like that is going to be a sticking point. That is when mm-hmm. you are going to see what teams are actually committed to because that's the crux of what we are going through right now like you said not racist violence racialized violence and if you are committed to these principles if you say black lives matter if you say that you are against systemic racism then that cannot be on your calendar like that to me is like the big big immediate change that within the next year should be like a huge firestorm between leagues and fans yeah, that, that's a great point. That is such a great point. Um, Actually, it, yeah, can I ahead. can yeah. I sort of jump jump Do in it. there because like as uh, okay, so we're, we'll we'll bring it back to hockey for a, a second, mm-hmm. and like every Saturday night, like one of my projects in my own work is like taking down this idea of like Canada or hockey is like Canada's national identity, mm-hmm. and like part and parcel to that is like every Saturday night on hockey night in Canada, um, they start off with like military appreciation. Yes. And, and I would love, I would really love to get your thoughts on how that will exist. Or I like, I think we could probably all agree it shouldn't exist in the future, but like, how will they go about that? If you were to like be skeptical for a moment, how would that even work? It's not going to, I'll, I'll be honest. I think that mm. you're going to have people like myself, you're going to have a couple of columnists 
who are on the fringes who are going to come out and say, if the teams are serious, then they need to really look at kind of like the militarized structure that's been ingrained in us uh, and really reevaluate that. And in my opinion, I don't think any team is going to have the balls to take that off the schedule because there will be, you know, they'll be, they'll face huge backlash from, from fans and from just the general public who will kind of try to argue that, well, these are the brave men and women who serve our country, right? But they're, <laughs> they're not making this distinction between you can support, you know, soldiers individually versus being against what the military establishment stands for and what it has done. So I, I don't have any hope, honestly, not, not within the next, not within the next year for sure. If they do, we have to have you on again to discuss it. Oh my God. I mean, I, I would hope. love to eat my words, but yeah, every single game that you go to, it's, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta stand for the anthem. You gotta stand for the yeah. military. Like I'm, I want to sit, just let me sit. <laughs> okay. I, I gotta ask you, a to- this is a total digression. It's really, it's yeah. not, a que- not a question we prepared for. I probably shouldn't even be bothering to ask it, except I'm just really interested. And the question is, okay, you cover the NHL really carefully. Mm-hmm. You're in Washington D.C. Derek and I are both Canadians. Mm-hmm. How do you get your hockey? Like, I can't imagine following hockey without like having access to CBC. I, I guess it's not even CBC anymore. Is it all on Sportsnet now? Now I'm confused myself because I yeah, hockey in Canada is all on Sportsnet all on Sports- and like, Roger Sports- TSN. Do, do you have like do you have access? Like, do you follow the Canadian hockey coverage or not really? I, I do actually. I follow um, I follow some TSN coverage. I follow a lot of TSN reporters. I actually got into hockey through um, uh, I guess his name is Cabby. He he did he used to yeah, do these Cabby Richards. Yeah, Cabby Richards. Like he used to do these like fun NHL videos for. Uh, is it TSN? I think it's the TSN. Score. No, it's the, the, score. The, the score. He I know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, and it was like a weird mix of like Canadian content that would just migrate <laughs> its way to me towards from the internet. And I had no idea where it was coming from. But now I have the NHL network um, and and I can, you know, find streams and stuff. But yeah, it, it definitely has to be a mix because American NHL content is is only going to get you so far. Yeah. Cavi was the first like introduction of black culture into Canadian hockey that yeah. I can remember oh, in my wow. in my life. It is, it was the one thing that actually like made hockey interesting to me. I'm not even gonna lie. It wasn't <laughs> it, it wasn't that I didn't appreciate those broadcasts, but I didn't click until I kind of saw that like, oh, here's somebody who can actually bring personality to the players and to the game. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. It's like yeah, he brought some of the culture that frankly like you could see in the kind of the world of Raptors coverage, I feel like mm-hmm. in Raptors fandom and the kind of, because that's the thing in, in Toronto, the Raptors are infinitely more representative of the kind of city of Toronto mm-hmm. than, than in a, in almost every way than the Leafs are. And so if you kind of like really want to do some kind of ethnography of fandom and what it says about Canadian society, you get, you glean way more of interest, I think <laughs> from studying yeah. the Raptors than the kind of hockey communities. But again, it's like, those are always, Push to the side, right? Like this is again a sort of digression into the conversation about Canadian multiculturalism, um, but that's what it is, right? We always like we kind of Canada celebrates multiculturalism, but then when push comes to shove, it's whiteness. Always, it comes yeah. back to whiteness, and and that's what hockey culture has always been here. So that's another worry I have, by the way, in this larger conversation, because that's what multiculturalism also does. It appropriates constantly, right? It appropriates mm-hmm. most delicious aspects 
of so-called, you know, non-white others or whatever, whatever language to, to use in that sense. But like what, I, what I'm trying, what I'm thinking of there is like we have the ethnic aisles in mm -hmm. Canadian grocery stores, right? But this is a multicultural society. It's supposedly celebrating everyone as equal participants in the society. But like that language tells you immediately there's whiteness and then there's ethnic, right? Yeah. Those two things are not the same. Um, and that's what that so that's I mean, that's entirely how Canadian society is organized and has been organized for decades. Um, and, and that's, you know, one might worry that that's what's happening with hockey, too, in this moment, right? In that it's like branching out a little bit to sort of make claims about its ethical legitimacy through a sort of Black Lives Matter protest. But then, as you point out, will the military appreciation night be back? Um, is the culture of the game? Because like when we talk about the culture of the game, we're literally talking about not just that like, oh yeah, there's a lot of white people in positions of authority, which of course there are. Um, and so there's like appreciation for white culture. I mean, we're literally talking about active, virulent discrimination against mm -hmm. non-white people, right? Mm -hmm. like the, in, the people I interviewed would talk about the constant flow of sl like vicious slurs. As you pointed out, it's not, it's not even just anti-Black racism. It's basically any population that's not a kind of very traditional WASPy identity that yeah. is subjected to that kind of abuse starting in early junior hockey. Like, we're not just talking about the NHL. This is like the culture that Canadian kids are yeah. raised, the Canadian hockey kids are raised in. So, um, you know, that does, that's what I find so hard to see changing in a week, right? It's not a surprise that these players aren't speaking back. Like, it makes no sense to them that they would have well, that kind of obligation. Yeah, it, it is really deeply intertwined with, you know, again, this goes back to Akeem Alou, it goes back to Bill Peters in, in Calgary and some of the conversations that we were having before the George Floyd shooting in terms of hockey's deeply entrenched toxicity, right? Like there is a deeply entrenched kind of masculine toxicity that is drilled into these kids from a very young age. By the, by the time you get to the NHL, it's too late, right? Like it, it takes so much deprogramming to get them to unlearn these behaviors and even recognize why these behaviors might be problematic. It really, if you're, if you're talking about unraveling that kind of culture, it, it has to start at, at the lower levels, right? So that by the time they get to the NHL, it, it isn't that problematic. Um, the, the good thing about it, though, is that I am encouraged in a lot of ways, right? Like I do see some players who are trying to lead and it looks like they hopefully will do some of the learning and will be willing to keep speaking up. And if that happens, then I see it filtering it down, filtering down to younger players, right? Who can look at Jonathan Taves and say, okay, Jonathan Taves is my favorite player and I see him talking about systemic racism. So maybe I will listen to this video about systemic racism and then maybe that will change something in me. Yeah, no, yeah. you know what? I mean, I got to buy that. I, I, I teach about representation. I value cultural representation as a meaningful form of politics. So I got to accept the legitimacy of that um, yeah. as an argument. I think that that's right. And that's, that's what we can hope for here, which is why parsing these statements does matter because um, mm -hmm. it forces, it pushes to a way higher standard. That's the point of doing it, right? It's not right. just to shit on what they've done, but it's to hold them to a completely different kind of stand, standard. Um, Which, no, I mean, to be fair, everybody on the internet is is just really just all about like, hey, you just want to shit on everything that they've done. And I'm like, no. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, that's, listen, it'll get you some retweet, perhaps. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I, we could keep talking about this all night, uh, and I'm tempted to, but I also... No, no, no. Please move on, yeah. Okay. Because well, uh, early, here's the thing. Earlier in the pandemic, um, something we've been talking about at length. I mean, before we got to this 
very specific moment of uprising, we've been talking about um, labor and the pandemic in the world mm-hmm. of sport. Um, and earlier in the pandemic, you penned a piece that frankly vibes with our outlook completely. In it, you wrote, and I quote here, the fact that leagues are willing to rush their athletes into scenarios that would compromise their health and safety is not just unconscionable, but frankly ghoulish. Athletes aren't a disposable commodity, yet they're certainly being treated as such. Their value has always been in relation to the amount of money their bodies are able to generate, yet the virus has laid bare just how gruesome the exchange is. I mean, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, would you say, though, that anything has happened to change your outlook in the ensuing two months or so that have elapsed at this point? What, another way of putting this is kind of what has the pandemic, as it has sort of unfolded, revealed to you about sport? I think that it has made the exchange that a lot of us, especially those of us who work in sports, we can see and we can try to rationalize away. And it has really kind of laid bare any artifice that you might have tried to to apply to to this exchange, right? I have I think I look at it that way because my background is in cultural studies and I, you know, took a couple of courses on Marxist theory. So that's just how I approach a lot of different things. And again, it's, you know, you can try to think of before the pandemic as maybe there was some exchange, right? Like there was some equitable exchange happening between owners and players. But when you think about this in terms of what the MLB has proposed and truly just kind of the stark language that they use in terms of let's have extra players on our rosters so that if some others get sick, we've got people that we can easily swap out. I mean, that's, that, that that's just unethical. Like it is, they're not treating these people as humans. They're not treating these people as that. They're treating these people as commodities. And they've just decided to dispense with kind of all the flower, flowery language and stuff that makes us turn away from it. So there's, there's nothing to hide behind right now. Um, I, I don't think anything has changed in the last two months, just aside from, I, I see it a lot more clearly now and it's a lot harder to ignore. Now, do you think any major sports league is like doing this well, like is dealing with this question of labor, but also like human rights and public health, like all together? Do you think anyone is doing this right or at least like adequate in your view? No, I I really don't. I I don't think there's an ethical way to do this. I, I don't think that like. I mean, I'm a participant in the system, but that doesn't mean that I think the system is ethical. You know, yeah. it, it, I understand that I'm propping up a system that exploits labor. That's that's the part of the system that I'm in. Um, I, I don't think anybody's doing this ethically. I think that what's happening here is people trying to decide what kind of risks that they're going to be taking to sustain their, li- sustain their living, right? We have... Um, and what their risk tolerance is going to be, because they might be making a lot more money, but it's still the same value exchange is happening. So even if you are a grocery worker or a bus driver, you got to keep your job so that you can keep getting paid. And that's the same thing happening with athletes. They're getting paid a lot more money, but it does not make that okay. I don't think anybody's doing this right. I don't think anybody's going to do this right. I think everybody yeah. is just is deciding am I okay with a couple of players getting sick? So that means that I can generate X 
amount of revenue. Yeah, that's it. That's the trade off because people that logic are, is so fucked up. It, like it, that logic is so fucked up. It's so it's capitalism, right? Like that's that is exactly what's happening right now because we have all decided that there is a baseline of death and sickness that we are willing to accept so that our life can continue. That that's it. We we made that trade off. Uh, we're yeah, in gotta, it. Got to run money through the state of Oklahoma, right? Right, um, exactly, exactly. Like we got to well guys, we got to run money through the state of Oklahoma, so I'm going to need five guys to step up. Like what? <laughs> Yeah, but the, the, the students who were charged with nurturing. Uh, yeah, and, no and just, that. sorry, let me just add one thing, which is that in terms of college athletics, it is obviously just a ton more exploitive because those players don't really have a choice, right? It's their education, yeah. it's their future. It's not like they get to do this for a paycheck. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, okay, so I wanted to follow up on on this too, because, you know, and this is maybe, it's, I think, a touchy subject because... Very understandably, because if we're talking about women's sports, we're talking about sports that are systematically underrepresented and Mm -hmm. underfunded and generally marginalized. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's just a fact. So Mm -hmm. that's the starting point. But if we're talking about labor, right, Uh, Mm -hmm. and and workers, we're talking about the same kind of conditions that you've just been just been laying out for us, right? Um, And and. I felt some concern about what happened with the the NWSL recently mm-hmm. in the last couple, and it's been completely overshadowed now by the uprisings, totally understandably. Um, but if we go step back a couple of weeks or whatever it was, you know, there was a lot of celebration that they were gonna, the NWSL was going to be the first league back and therefore mm-hmm. capitalize on finally the chance to be in the spotlight, which again, it would be like if we were imagining the, the sports league just for some reason <laughs> benevolently decided to shut down for a while and take a rest. And then a women's league was the first to come back and everyone paid attention to them. Like the NFL tried to do with the XFL. Great. That would be a dream scenario. But that's not what we're talking about here. And literally, we could see in some of the reporting that what had happened was that like individuals in the organization who were releasing public statements saying they were trying to be very, very careful about the, you know, the working conditions for um, their labor. Suddenly, when the idea was proposed that they would be the first league back, pivoted like that. Just snap of fingers, and it was like, you know what? No, that's it. We got to get back. Stat. Yeah. And, and as soon as you see that logic, I'm sorry, right? But I'm not buying that they have it all worked out and they have the appropriate protocols and whatever. I mean, like they're they are endangering the lives of their workers. That's a hundred percent true. That's exactly what it is. It is that rush to come back and capture audience and and get ratings and increase market share, and for what? Right, it it is going to be putting those people's lives at risk, and to me, is it worth it? No. And again, that's part of like the systemic problem that we're looking at here, which is that these women would have to rush into an unsafe situation just so that they could be even like half as visible as men are on on any given day. And that's a systemic issue, right? Like that's a media issue, that's a me issue, that's how how we think about women's sports in general. Um and then it's just it's unconscionable. That's great. Okay, listen, you've 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 done the pivot for us cuz we we want to talk sports media now. And so okay. that's this is, this is perfect. <laughs> great. Um, and by the way, but, but before I even do that, I got to tell you like I mean, you said that you did your cultural studies um, student, you took classes on Marxism. I just gotta like 
the idea of someone working at the USA Today with that kind of training, I mean, it's just bringing a tear to my eye. <laughs> Don't tell them that. No, exactly. Exactly. I know. I was thinking that too. Um, exactly. I don't even know why I brought it up. No, no. That's, that's what we're here for. We were trying to get people to say things they wouldn't say elsewhere because we got to listen. It's a moment where everything is falling apart around us. Um, and yeah. and I, like, listen, I work at Duke University. So if we're talking about you know, hedge funds with universities attached, uh, then, you know, my <laughs> hand's up over here. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Um, listen, if we're talking about the sports media, then I, I want to talk a little bit about how the sports media has been covering both the rebellions and the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the question is kind of, what do you think the responsibilities of the sports media are when it comes to these issues? And broadly speaking, how successful do you think the sports media has been in fulfilling those obligations? Oh, okay. That's a great question. And I I have thought about this a little bit because I think about it a lot in relation to the work that I do and what my responsibilities are as I consider myself a journalist. I don't consider myself like a straight reporter, but I'm a journalist. Um, To me, the responsibilities of sports media should be what the responsibilities are of any good journalist, which is to hold those in power accountable. And I think sports media fails miserably at that. I I really do. I think that sports media as a whole, we're talking NBA, NFL, MLB, has for a really long time thought about itself in terms of just covering X's and O's of here's what happened during a game, right? And I I think that maybe that was okay 20, 30 years ago when we didn't have the kind of access that we have now, the kind of information that we have now. And every now and then you would get like, you know, one great investigative piece about steroids or or something like that. Um, And and again, those people always thought of themselves as like investigative sports journalists, right? Like they, they never thought of themselves as just regular sports journalists. Like to me, your job as a sports journalist is to think critically about the information you are being presented and the team and the athletes that you are covering. It is not just to report on what happened during the game. Um, and in terms of how journalists have also covered, I, I love that you guys are calling it the rebellion. It just makes it feel so cool <laughs> and less scary. Um, it, you know, the protests and George Floyd's death, a lot of them have been really hands off about it. They have not really directly address the issue, especially the NHL media, what they've done is try to filter it through the lens of white players, which is insanely problematic, you know, and to me overall, it it kind of fails miserably because the structure that's in place right now is that you're supposed to have uh, sports reporters who are beat reporters, right? And those beat reporters cannot jeopardize their access or they won't be able to do their jobs. And so they stay away from a lot of stories, right? They, they know all the stuff that's happening, but they don't write it. They don't report it because they know that either they're on really good terms with the team and they don't want to lose that kind of access, or they just don't think it's important. Like they made that value judgment. Um, and I am, I, it's not so much that I'm privileged. It's just that you know, I have always kind of been an outsider and I'm, I've never been a beat reporter. I've always looked at the sport as something that I really enjoy and something that I really want to cover, but it's never really been intertwined, like twined with my life the way it is with other, with other guys. So you, you open like, while I was listening to your response, you opened up like a whole avenue of this 
this question I'm about to ask that I didn't even think of before. I was going to ask a question about how you sort of deal with pushback from like listeners, Twitter bots, like whatever people on Twitter that like push back against your takes on sport. But now I'm also wondering like how you push back or if you have to push back against like colleagues in the industry, maybe also pushing back on your coverage of sport. Like how do you handle like hate overall and like people like tweeting at you um, negative comments or like saying like you don't understand and like whatever they, they want to throw at it. How do you handle that? So I'll answer that first question, which is the negative Twitter stuff and the emails. It, it doesn't really bother me. It's not, well, I mean, sometimes some of it will hit a little uncomfortably close to, okay, I'm going to turn this off now because it's really bringing me down. Um, the only time that feedback bothers me is when I think I've deliberately missed a point. That's when that mm. if it's legitimate feedback, then yeah, I'm I'm really going to take a second look at something that I've written and kind of been like, okay, let me let me think about this. But I would say 98% of the time, it's just people who are really mad that I don't like Sidney Crosby. Like just to pick this week, it was that I didn't think Crosby's statement was good enough, and it was just a lot of outraged Pittsburgh Penguins fans. And that stuff I can deal with. It doesn't really bother me. Um, what is interesting is dealing with criticism inside the industry. So I'm not going to get into specifics about who the reporter was. I'm not going to get into specific specifics about the outlet, but I reported on a story recently and I had a editor at a prominent hockey outlet. I'll leave it at that. Literally slide into my DMs to try to convince me that the article that I had written was not factual. Like this was not a player. This was not like a player's PR agent. This was not a team's PR. This was a fellow media member who was sticking up for an NHL player. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just like, yeah, I was like, why are you carrying water for this? nobody. And, you know, it just, it it was, it was ridiculous. So there's a lot of NHL media is really buddy, buddy with NHL players. I have no idea why this one dude was so protective of this one player. I don't know what their relationship was. Um, But uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of people who just think that it's smooth sailing is, is better for everybody that if you don't criticize the sport, then you are um, that, you know, you're just making it more accessible when I, I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, so. no, that, that's a great, no, that's a great point. I appreciate you sharing that story. Um, I, I actually have to say that I relate not, I'm far from a journalist, but you know, I've written some popular pieces. And so yeah. you know, when you write popular pieces, then you are exposed to a popular audience and <laughs> you get some of the reactions you've described. And I have to say, I completely agree with you. It's like, it just right off my back, like rolls right off my back. The people being like, you're a terrible writer. This is, you just don't understand basketball at all. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean like, <laughs> okay, fine. Thank you for your take. Um, yeah, and it actually helps if you give them funny voices, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. like, you know, most of the places I've written, they don't have a comment. Like, you know, the mo- just for all you writers out there, 
if you want to if you want to write something that let's say trolls the average sports fan by forcing them to confront uh, the reality of their experience and what they're inflicting upon athletic labor try writing for the salt lake tribune because uh they will in fact respond in the comments they have oh like it was like there were like 20 some comments on my piece like i never get because i write in the perfect like um venn diagram like i'm right in the spot where uh i say things about politics in in the context of sport so people Mm -hmm. from a political like a leftist perspective or like you're talking about sport i don't care about that you're that's like the most useless arena for you to be talking about politics and then people in the world of sport are like don't talk about politics (laughs) um so so no one actually wants to hear what i have to say so like if i got 20 20 comments on a story i'm here telling telling an anecdote about it uh it turns out uh years later uh anyway (laughs) but um uh okay yeah it's Go ahead, please. It's, no, I was just gonna say it's true. It's it's kind of like, yeah, I get it. You're you're mad. You're upset. But if you have a legitimate grievance, like I will absolutely address that with you. I would love to debate that with you. I mean, it would upset me if you guys read something I wrote and then had questions about it or kind of wanted to push back. Like that to me is something that I would take really seriously. I'd be like, oh, I respect what they have to say. Let me think about this. To, you know, I don't really care if you're a Barstool fan and you really love Dave Portnoy. Like, that to me is, is not a huge deal. No, then you're doing your job right. I think yeah. you really have that feeling, right? Like, sometimes you can tell who the respondent is. And it's like, if I am pushing certain buttons, it means I'm yeah. saying the appropriate things. That's, yeah. that's yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, so to be a bit more, um, to be a bit more serious now, because I actually want to talk about something that I can, I mean, I can only imagine is um, deeply serious. You know, at the core of the current revolts is the issue of not only police violence, but also, I think critically, right, it's stru- as we've been talking about, structural racism and the white supremacist fabric of this country. You know, that's mm-hmm. my characterization of it. I'm curious the extent to which you have seen and experienced that reflected in your own industry of journalism, sports media, right? Because, I mean, we see it in the sports industry. That's what we've been talking about at length in this conversation, right? So that's like none of us have even a question about that. Um, but we don't hear that discussed if we're talking about the media industry very often. But, you know, like most of my questions are fishing and leading questions, et cetera. And, and you had made some really powerful comments about uh, a podcast. I don't I, I wish I had the name now, but like there was a new podcast initiated what seems like years ago now in terms of like how time is passing and the issues that we're prioritizing. But where it was like four white women who essentially all looked exactly the same uh, mm-hmm. were brought in to, to, to run a new podcast by some media outlet or whatever that had some kind of reach. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I'm just curious to kind of tease out that conversation because I don't think we talk about that enough. Yeah, I I don't think we talk about that enough. And before this week, I I was actually always worried that when I did tweet about it or when I did kind of allude to it and stuff that I'd written, it was going to kind of get me called into the editor's office or I was going to get like an email from a higher up editor being like, hey, you need to watch yourself. I I think that the media industry is very sensitive to allegations of, hey, we have structural racism in all of our organizations. They don't want to hear it, even though it 100% exists. This one podcast that we're talking about, it was from a local affiliate, actually, a local NBC sports affiliate in the D.C. market. And the D.C. market is insanely diverse, right? It has a a big African-American population. There are a ton of immigrants in this area, and it reaches Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, and parts of Maryland. So, And the fact that they chose four white women that looked exactly the same 
one, didn't see a problem with that. And two, they put together this little video of all four white women talking together in just kind of a parody that made it so apparently clear just how structurally racist uh, American, or sorry, sports television media at least absolutely is. Um, it, it absolutely exists. I think everybody has, especially if you're a minority and, and you work in sports media, you've dealt with it probably to different degrees. I think that I'm lucky in the sense that the immediate editors that I work with, like my editor who edits all of my stuff, Chris Corman, my boss, you know, Nate Scott, both white guys are incredibly aware of these issues and they've been very encouraging so that I feel empowered to say the things that I want to say, because I know that, you know, my immediate bosses is like, these people have my back. Like I feel good. I feel okay saying these things. Um, but that's not the case. That's not the case at a lot of places right now in terms of look at the reporting for how hockey players are, are being covered and think about what outlets are reporting the story and how they're doing it. I think a lot of that has to do with people being afraid to push buttons within their organization. I mean, I've, you know, look at ESPN. I have a lot of respect for their NHL reporters, but I've only seen one story from them about the NHL response to the rebellion, to this like massive sea change happening. That's structural racism right there, right? Like that is yeah. ESPN saying you can write about it, but you can only write about it this way. Now, like on a similar note, like I think we can all observe this sort of rampant misogyny that sort of characterizes not only the locker room in sport like just the sort of locker room culture of sport but also like fandom and also i think we can highlight that in sports media and the industry as well mm -hmm. can you speak a little bit to the challenges of working in such a profoundly patriarchal context gosh i don't know i i wonder if it, it's something that either I have just metabolized it so much that I sometimes wonder if like, like gender wise, I have just kind of lost that. I don't want to, I don't even want to say femininity, but because I need to fit in, I have just stripped all these different parts of my identity out so that I can fit into the locker room. Mm -hmm. um, like that's, that's the really weird thing is because mm, there's no big, like, like it used to be back in the day, right? Where athletes would kind of expose themselves to you because they didn't want a woman in the locker room. I would say instead, it's like a lot of what are seeming microaggressions. Um, you know, every now and then somebody will like stop me in a locker room and will think that I'm a PR person or I sat and I, you know, I sat in my seat in a press box and a fellow reporter turned to me and said, Hey, what are you doing here? Like, just like, like, why are you here? And I'm like, I'm here to cover the game, just like you, dude. Um, yeah. Little little things like that. Um, but overall, it is more about uh, what parts of your personality, what parts of your identity that like subconsciously you just kind of strip away because you know they're going to start being problematic. I think that that's actually what happens to a lot of players too, right? You yes. just, I, I, I don't think it's any different. I think, I just don't think people realize it. Like, that's a, yeah, that's, a, like, that's a great point. You know, I just, just to jump in on it because you've yeah. excited me, like Mike, we were talking to Mike, or I wasn't, I 
I missed it. I didn't get to talk to Michael Bennett, but Derek talked to Michael Bennett. Um, and in his book, you know, things that make white people uncomfortable, one of the things that absolutely jumped out and like grabbed me by the neck was when he talked about how players, it's exactly what you're talking about, how players, their identity gets completely yanked from them because mm -hmm. they're, they're put in this machine that is all about performance, right? It's all about instrumentalizing your body. So it churns out results. And that means that like, that's is like the least insidious version of it, even what we're talking yeah. about here, right? It's like, just, you know, yeah. we want you to be high performance athletes, which means you eat at these times, you eat these foods, you do this training regimen, you go to sleep at this time, like, cause we figured out that's the most effective way of producing the outputs that we want performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But like, that means after 10 years of doing that, people, he, he literally said like my, I know people, they don't even know what their favorite foods are anymore yes. they do not know who they are because that has been taken from them and then with players right they're just dropped out at the end of that whatever age they are leaving even aside all the injury and everything else it's like okay live the rest of your life now good luck <laughs> so the way you're describing it i don't mean to laugh because it's funny but it's just so insane that it it is i mean it's just dystopian how we do it right like when you break this down when you think about taking kids from their parents putting them in these programs away from their home and their family and stripping their identity to this very core there's there's nothing that isn't dystopian about that like you are you are taking away humanity so that you can get performance um and yeah and of course like what's you know what happens to maybe women in locker rooms is it's like a very surface level of that but it's kind of the core of you might be changing parts of your identity that you don't even realize because uh, this is what it takes to kind of make it in the business. But exactly. yeah, that's, that's crazy. That's what structure, I mean, that's what we've been talking about. We've been using these words throughout the show, but right, when we talk about structural this or structural that, yes. we're talking, right? We're talking about systems that are so profound and ingrained that what it's not about individual choices, like individual choices do matter and like ethics do matter and people do have some agency, but like the agency is within a structure. It's constrained by the structure and the structure acts upon the people within it. Yeah, it's it's um it's like an ideological state apparatus, right? Like it it's you think it's naturalized within you so that you don't even notice it. But I, by the way, I want to see that in a USA Today story. <laughs> I gotta wait. I gotta... <laughs> don't give away all my secrets. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, no, it's really I mean it's powerful and that's I mean, that is something that like for both Derek and I, right? I mean, we can be as critical as we want about sport and about understanding these structures exist, but like that, that is the fundamental privilege of white masculinity is mm -hmm. never having to force yourself into something else because the, the world, like, I know this, the world sees me when I step in front of a class at Duke university, I look like a person who quote unquote is supposed to be in front of a class at Duke university, right? Yeah. And the students yeah. look at me that way. Um, you know, then they, they hear me for a while and some of them then look at me as a raving Marxist and don't continue to look at me that way anymore <laughs> after a while. Uh, that's also true. But, um, but no, but I, I will say this because it's really serious. You know, we, we have a kind of weird dystopian office set up where we're on the top floor of a building and because we are um, essentially uh, precarious faculty, um, we're not tenure track faculty. Uh, mm -hmm. And by the way, when this was really brought home, when we had a gun violence training session and they oh came to the building, they had no context for it. By the way, I was traumatized by it. The single oh session, like two hours, just traumatized me. But <gasps> they, they came in and the guy was like, down, because there's a real upstairs, downstairs, but it's reversed. Like the upstairs, historically, the, up, the upstairs are the, the, the lower class citizens and the downstairs were the upper class citizens. Um, and he was like, downstairs, you guys got great facilities here. These walls are concrete. These doors are so hard. You're safe. Just close your door. 
<laughs> but like things like upstairs, hmm, yeah, there's there's really nowhere for you to go because they could just, you know, they could just shoot right through your walls here and they'd, they'd all be dead. So that's a concern. We're like, well, yeah, that that's a good metaphor for um for the arrangement of space and power <laughs> here. Um, and, and really make clear your status, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, that, that was the first staff meeting of the year. So that was an interesting <laughs> note to start the year on. Um, but uh, what I'm trying to say is because of this weird arrangement, I, I hear things that happen in my colleagues who I love, by the way, and I love, I, you know, I'm disparaging a lot, but my colleagues, I love my colleagues and they're doing incredible work in this writing program that we operate within um, and all on very different topics. We're quite different in our disciplinary orientations. Um, but, you know, the people are doing great work. And so I hear them when they're in office hours, their students. That's what I'm trying to build up to. Mm -hmm. It is like clear as day in office hours, who gets pushback from students. Ooh. I have not in my four years at Duke had a student to go beyond like, uh, well, I've had a past teacher tell me my writing was good. So I'm surprised <laughs> you don't like it. Like literally, that's like that's them pushing back on me. People, mm -hmm. by the way, students really care a lot about grades at Duke, so like they also they understand the power dynamics. You know, there's a lot going on. But here's the thing: I have non-white women who are my colleagues as well. They frankly put more into their teaching, like twice as much in their teaching than I do. They're incredible out there. Like they are truly craftspeople at what they do. And I hear the students escalating in those offices in a oh, way that man. feels unsafe for the individuals involved, and oh, it only God. happens to certain people. Right. Wow. That's, of, that's the structure we're talking about here. And this is yeah. reproduced across the academy, across yeah. all these different industries. These are the dynamics we're speaking about when we talk about structural racism. And when we talk about patriarchy, what we're talking about is structural misogyny. Obviously, yeah. that, that's what we're talking about. Um, it is. It, I'm sorry, ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. You didn't. I've been, <laughs> I was trying to give you an opening since I was <laughs> going on and on. <laughs> no, I, I, I feel like there's always these, you know, there's always instances that happen within the context of work and bosses and, and locker rooms where it's, you know, I, I, it's not like I've had, um, I haven't had the experiences that I think some other reporters might have had, but you do realize that there are a lot of doors that are going to be permanently shut to you. We have reporters that kind of get to do, um, so one one example is that I have been covering the Washington Capitals because I'm based in D.C. for a really long time. So like every time they made it to the playoffs or whatever, like I was the person in the locker room. I had been going to like practices and things like that. And then when it came time to do a story where they took uh, a dad's trip. So you guys are NHL fans, so you'll know what a dad's trip is. But if you're a listener and you don't, which is where they take the hockey dads on a road trip. And it's kind of this big fun thing that NHL teams do. They did a dad's trip. And, and I was like staring at the PR person, like I am the person that should be going on this because I am the person who has been covering this team backwards and forwards for the past two years. And of course the reporter that I got to go was an old white guy because they could not bring a young woman on. I'm not even that young. Like they just could not bring a woman to, to come witness all of this stuff because it would make people uncomfortable. Like, that's wow. just that like that door is just going to permanently be shut to you because I'm a woman and maybe it would have been different if I was white. I don't even know, but it was, you know, I'm a woman and the dads are going to feel weird about it. The players are going to feel weird about it. The players wives are going to feel weird about it and it's not going to happen. Oh, I've heard that one. That is one of the, the I've heard a colleague yeah. who again does incredible work, uh, <laughs> an academic colleague who does work on, athletic labor as well and does work with families and hearing that that's that that issue it's like 
the, the concern that the athletes would be talking to a woman and what that means, right? The danger of that. So it's like a door shut on researchers and media members. Like you can't even have access to athletes because there's this fear that you're going to be trying to like insinuate yourself. In a kind I, of dynamic. Yeah, we had, you know, there was a, there's a columnist for the Washington Post, Dan Steinberg. He is great. He does great work. And he had written a column about how he got to go hang out with the Washington Capitals after they lost the uh, Stanley Cup final. I can't remember when it was, but it was several years ago. And I remember that there was a time when I was having an interview with a player, but I was leaning, but it was kind of like outside the confines of kind of the natural locker room um, scrum. And I was just excited because like, oh, here is a player who's, who's talking to me like just in, as an equal. And it got shut down so quickly by a PR person because that dynamic of a player talking to a woman outside of a scrum, like it was just immediately was not allowed to happen. And then 10 minutes later, the same player gets to talk to Dan Steinberg and they're just like shooting the shit and talking about their respective wives and girlfriends. And that's it. Like you're just, you know, it's just not something that's going to happen for you. And this industry, Derek and I are even learning this because um, we're, because we're trying to, uh, make connections with people because we want to have guests that we're excited to talk about, right? But we have yeah. to find a way to make connections. With people. I mean, like you're in it, but you're in an industry where the, it seems to me like the connections you have to athletes, they're like, it's gold, right? Like it that's is. capital people have. And so if that's yeah. closed off to you, that's a fundamental limitation of your ability to do your job. Yeah, yeah it, it is. And, and I mean, I, you know, there's just nothing you can do about it. Is it misogynistic? Yeah. But again, structural misogyny, right? It's there. Yeah. And I, I mean, to the credit of NHL players, I've never had really an NHL player be ruder to me than they have been to a male hockey reporter. Like if that person is going to be a jerk, he's going to be a jerk to everybody. It's not just yeah. me. Um, so I think they have at least to that point been kind of trained really well. And I have been lucky enough to be able to connect with certain players off the record about some of the issues that I want to write. Like, so I know that there are good guys out there and they're kind of just trying to figure out avenues that they want to use. But the system, again, makes it hard. There are real repercussions for them if they step out. Totally. Well, listen, let's, let's finish here with um, a question about the media industry now, kind of just projecting what's going to happen to the sports media industry as we move forward. Because we've already seen, um, Companies like SB Nation, right? Furlough uh, a large number of the reporters. Uh, it's bleak. Like I mean, it's mm -hmm. bleak in the academy, and it's bleak in journalism in general. It's bleak. It's bleak across the country. Um, but I'm just curious, kind of, what your outlook is on the future of the industry. Can it be saved? And if so, how? So, because it's my career, I have thought a lot about it in terms of what's going to happen to us and. I think that I have settled on slightly optimistic scenario, but not before we go through some major upheaval. I, I think you're right. The the sustain the model right now for journalism is not sustainable in terms of uh, ad generated revenue. The the money is just not there, and the marketplace is very crowded. And there are lots of other ways for people to get information. So you are going to see this kind of massive shrinking of existing digital media properties. The good news on top of that, though, is that I think that there are going to be a lot of people who know how to do this work 
And I think you're going to start to see a small resurgence of the olden days of early internet blogging, right? Where you had a group of talented people who could get together and write on the internet and just amongst themselves try to monetize it before everything kind of got gobbled up by big corporations. Um, my origins are in blogging and uh, it's not that I want to go back to being an unpaid blogger, but I kind of see that happening already, right? Like there's, there's a lot of sites that... Uh, laid off their staffs just in one fell swoop and then those guys just decided to start a blog right deadspin writers kind of every now and then all get together and write on a blog for a day or two um i think you might start to see more of that i think that it's going to be really painful within the next year year or two and hopefully the bright side is is that people find ways to still keep doing unique and interesting work I, I think, I hope the best um, for you and I hope the best for like the entire industry. I think there's great value in the work that you do and in the work that sports journalists and sports writers do across the board. Um, so I just want to like say one, like a shout out of solidarity, hopefully that like the, the pandemic doesn't have this sort of massive upheaval in your industry as it seems to be having in like many mm -hmm. uh, and a shout out solidarity to like everyone because i think we're all um dealing in in a variety of ways and like we're privileged here to like have jobs and we're grateful for those jobs but we know that like the future is super uncertain so um thank you so much for coming on the show um uh, and, and thank you for all of the insights that you gave us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And, and if I can just say one last thing, which is absolutely, uh, thank you very much for the work that you're doing. I have, again, I'm far removed from kind of my graduate school origins, but reading the stuff that you guys are writing and being privy to these discussions has really helped me in the work that I do and really helped me kind of narrow down the ideas that I want to express. And it's really been helpful to me. Like I, I just, I really look forward to what you guys have to say, how you're approaching issues, help me find the blind spots in my own thinking. So, you know, just right back at you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the end of sport podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at End of Sport Pod.